Hello and welcome to the Chris Ham Podcast, episode number 17. Um, I plan to have my wife Jen on hopefully next week for a standalone episode. But on this episode, we start with a discussion around pregnancy from the husband's perspective, as well as some social norms around pregnancy in general. Uh, We then segue to some philosophical discussion. And then uh, finally, as, as usual, during the NFL season, we do a bridge episode from week five to week six, including my picks against the spread. And we end with a rant. So I have to start with the concept of a tip jar. Let me first say that I am very much for tip jars. You know, service workers deserve to get a little extra, uh, regardless of, of what type of of uh, establishment this is, if it's an eating establishment, if it's a laundry place, um, whatever it is. And every person that comes into a counter style establishment can certainly spare a few bucks. So the world in general probably has way more cheap people in it than generous people. So if you're trying to, to game where I'm going here, it's not some sort of rant against tip jars. Now, with respect to tip jars, I have to admit something, all right? I have to come clean on something. I am the guy that has to, or I should say I am the person that has to show the worker of the establishment where the tip jar sits that I am putting in a few bucks. Guilty as charged, all right? I'm like George Costanza in the Seinfeld Calzone episode. You remember that episode? Where... He goes in to buy a calzone for Steinbrenner when he's working for the Yankees. He tips, and then he gets annoyed that the worker doesn't see it, and he reaches back into the jar to take out his dollar so he can be seen putting it in. And in sitcom manner, he gets caught doing this, and it looks like he's trying to jack a dollar from the tip jar, and he's banned from the place. Classic moment that is probably unrealistic, but that desire to be seen for the good act of tipping is a human trait that I think is very relatable. It certainly applies to me. So I'm the person at a bar who buys a drink, or in my case these days, um, as I'm getting older and have a family, I get takeout food and pick it up from a bar, and the bartender has to see that I'm tipping. You know, the British writer from last century, um, it was a British writer that had a quote, And the quote said that integrity is doing the right thing even when no one is watching. All right. And this this um, (laughs) this this, I think, is a really profound philosophical concept for sure. Um, I'm trying I'm blanking on on the philosopher or, or the writer's name. But, you know, I am somebody who would and has returned too much money if I get extra change. I pick up garbage if I miss the trash receptacle. I pride myself on honesty with people, um, especially in my, in my recovery days, um, in my school days, you know, I never cheated on a test in my life. Um, but here in this instance, if we are applying this definition, I am lacking some integrity, right? I've not been perfect with integrity in my life. Not, not saying that I have at all. Um, you know, especially as I mentioned, recovery has helped me in this manner, but I don't know that I will ever not want credit for tipping. Tipping is optional, so I know I don't have to, but this is how I feel. All right, so I announced a couple of weeks ago that my wife Jen and I are pregnant 
with our second kid. We're expecting baby number two in March. And do I say that, you know, we're pregnant or she's pregnant? And this really pisses off some people, so I have to be careful about it. And, you know, let me tell you other moms out there, in no way am I experiencing a fraction of the pain, the discomfort, and the body changes associated with pregnancy, nor am I going through, which many deem as the most painful natural bodily process, to labor. I can't relate as a guy. No guy can relate to that. But, shit, man. Half of my DNA is in that baby in her belly. And we husbands are the ones running out to help with heartburn medicine, heating pads for back pain. We're holding, holding our, our, our spouse's hair when, when, when they have nausea. You know, tending to the other children that might be in the picture. And providing some level of emotional support. So, can there be that side of it too, at least to say we? Again, I'm not saying it's the same, but I am not just some sort of casual spectator either. So yeah, we're pregnant and uh, she's pregnant. However you want to, however you want to coin, however, however you want to classify it, right? But going through it a second time, I hear that the time with the baby goes by more quickly with an older kid in the picture and less unknowns. However, I have noticed that the conception and pregnancy period, not that it's going like turtle slow, but it's one that I've certainly taken a lot of the subtle and not so subtle details of the experience in. All right. So let's start with the whole notion of quote unquote trying. All right. You might laugh at me, but I never, but you know, uh, again, you're, you're, you're going to laugh at me about this, but I never realized the concept of ovulation cycles. Or I never thought about the, the details that go into it. I knew what ovulation was, so don't, don't, don't go crazy here, all right? But I didn't realize the rhythm of it. You know, I'm gonna save more of that discussion on this for when I bring Jen on so she can poke fun at me for this. But I didn't realize that the, the very short window every month, if it even happens for, for, for the woman, um, that you're able to actually conceive a baby. And how obscure of a, of a concept it is for the, the, the sperm to get through and implant in an egg. You know? But anyway, um, I find it very awkward to tell anybody that you and your spouse are trying. Anybody. You know? It's just, a, you know, you, you know, yet of course, earlier this year, I did this. Why? Because when you have your first kid and they turn two, every fucking person and their sister asks the intrusive questions. And yes, it's intrusive and personal, but nobody seems to give a, give a shit about that. And at the end of the day, you know, this is personal because it's an implicit discussion about your sex life, number one. And then secondly, what if you have fertility issues? It really brings up an emotionally heavy concept. So... Once your kid hits two and a half, this gets exponentially, exponentially more intense. So with Jen and I, you know, we got married at, you know, I was 32 turning 33. She was 28 turning 29. And the average range it felt like of uh, our demographic millennial in the New York area, uh, maybe the New York area, the LA area, many metropolitan areas outside of, outside of the Midwest and the South. The Eastern Seaboard, call it. 
uh, and the West Coast. LA is even later than New York, but whatever. But uh, we, you know, we, we always pictured having more than one kid, and we got pregnant very quickly with our daughter. You know, we were very fortunate to get pregnant. Uh, you know, when we just started, quote unquote, trying, uh, and I even realized we were trying. It, was just, it happened that quickly and that naturally with her. Um, I don't take that for granted for a second. Neither of us do. But you know, some parents either add a desire um, to condense their their kids' ages. Or because of biological clock issues, crank out number kid number two at right right around two years, or even before two years, uh, before the the first turns two, or just right after. Now, for us, based on a bit more runway because of Jen's age, um, coupled with other life circumstances and personal preferences, uh, we wanted at least three years apart. So then we started trying early this year. And we were fortunate again for it to happen pretty quickly. And here we are. So, so the next phase of awkwardness that comes after the, the trying period is when you find out you're pregnant. It's, it's a beautiful thing. It's, it's, it was, it's, it's happiness. And, it, and it's just this level of joy that, that, that I can't describe. But for those who don't know, uh, you know, you find out somewhere between week five and week seven. And another thing I, I never realized, your week count starts for when uh, – you know, you're, you, you as the as a woman or your spouse had your last period. You know, most women have a 28 to 32 menstrual cycle. So by the time you're you are a week or two late, you take a pregnancy test. You're already talking about week five, week six, right around week seven, and the first trimester goes on until week 13. And what a trip that whole thing is. You know, the first trimester when you really shouldn't be telling many people that you're pregnant because. The miscarriage rates are higher and just the, a lot of, you know, the, the stuff that could go wrong and, and, the, and, the, and the pregnancy stick rate um, is, is lower. The miscarriage rate's higher, the pregnancy, that kind of sticking rate is lower. And, you know, I never, another thing I never, I never, you know, I, I guess um, realized was just how much of a trip this first trimester thing is. And with our oldest, we found out right before Thanksgiving um, so it was easy to hide behind the holiday season. You know, this time around, we found out July 4th, right when the summer kicks into high gear. And in general, you know, as I said, even without any health concerns, miscarriages and unhealthy pregnancies happen early. So you aren't making a wide announcement until the end of the first trimester after a heartbeat ultrasound around week eight, after something called the NT scan, which, which tests for major birth, birth defects around week 12. And there's this whole concept around secrecy outside of maybe just parents and a few select friends. And um, it forces you to sort of go into hiding, as I said, for like two months. And it's just weird. when It's weird what happened for us in July. Like we had to go into hiding practically until after Labor Day. And another weird thing is that you end up telling random people who you are less close with rather than close friends or family because – your chances of seeing them ever again are approaching 0%. You know, it, 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 or, or they're very low probability you're going to see them again anytime soon. They're going to remember that you're pregnant, whatever it is. You know, but it's the thing that, that I felt like I really wanted to share. It's something that I was excited about, and it's a big life-altering secret that feels unnatural to keep bottled up. So just a whole interesting concept here. Now, we found out a couple of weeks before... We went to Jen's cousin's wedding in Vermont and our five-year anniversary trip. Um, so here we are at this wedding, and uh, you don't show 
that early at all as as the as the woman. I mean, you're really not showing until uh, middle of the second to end of the second. Tri- I say middle of the second trimester in most cases. I, a little bit earlier with the second kid, but here we are. You're at this wedding, um, and it's a drinking situation. And let me tell you something. So much of this world are fucking alcoholics. You know, the, the amount of booze offered is unsettling when you realize you can't accept it. And it gives me a ton of compassion for anybody in recovery for alcoholism. But um, we ended up telling the relatives that were there because at weddings, you know, you have these paradoxically small talk discussions wrapped in depth, which expose something like a pregnancy. Like you talk about how you live in New York, in the New York suburbs, and while the other couple that you might be talking to lives in Brooklyn, and oh, you have a three-year-old at home, but... When somebody shares the fact that they have two kids, five and a, you know, one and a half, and you, know, you start thinking, shit, that's going to be the age difference between my kids. Um, it just comes out. It's just a, hey, you know, by the way, we're pregnant. It's early. It comes out. You know? So following this wedding, we had five nights in Vermont at a spa and resort in Manchester, which I shared about on this podcast. But because we weren't public about the pregnancy, I left out this major nugget. And, but boy, oh boy. Uh, Jen's peak nausea hit, and here she was, most days vomiting, on the verge of vomiting, just feeling like crap, most days for several weeks straight, and went right in the middle, right in the thick of our Vermont trip, and it looks awkward to to, to people when you know, we're out at a restaurant, and the, these restaurant patrons are w- watching your wife get up every five minutes at like seven o'clock at night. To go to the bathroom while drinking a Shirley Temple. Well, there's like two Shirley Temples on the table because, you know, as his partner, I certainly don't want to be sitting there boozing it up when she, you know, not only can she can't, can not only can she drink alcohol, but she's sitting there like nauseous. And, uh, no, I felt so badly for her. Like everywhere we went, like it just took a lot of the enjoyment out of the activities. I mean, we, we did do some things that were still fun. There were small reprieves for the nausea, but, you know, not everybody gets nausea, but, but they do say like 70 to 80% of women get it, but she got it really badly. Um, and, and it was worse this time around than, than, our, than our oldest. Um, so that was just some of the experience uh, when we were away. And um, let's not fail to mention the coincidence that one of the other three trips that we went on the last four years was to Hawaii for our delayed honeymoon back about four years ago when Jen was pregnant with their oldest. And I, I joked with her, if we want a third, we should start trying and then plan a vacation. Um, you know, also the first trimester in Hawaii. And I'll end with, a, you know, just a headline of a very funny story. You know, I'm not going to go into too much detail here because this is something that Jen and I surely are going to talk about when I have her on as a guest. But back in 2015, picture that we, we, that we were there. Again, I think it was like week 10 of her pregnancy, week 9. Peak nausea. And it's December. We're at a sports bar in Honolulu at 8 in the morning, all right? My lovely wife, Jen, got into an altercation with a 75-year-old female Seahawks fan wearing a jersey, I believe. I think it was a Russell Wilson jersey. That's no joke, all right? This is no exaggeration either, all right? Story to come. We will talk about this in the next episode. So um, back with a philosophical concept I contemplated next. So a philosophical concept that I have in life is that people in situations are often simplified, but outcomes are often complicated. 
Let me explain what I mean. So I shared about this with people in situations in my biracial identity episode. You know, people want to rush to label ethnicities of people, political parties, or make a proclamation about what their life is in a certain way. Right? So it's a rush to judgment on uh, people and situations. Um, but usually, black and white not, is not appropriate in these circumstances. You know, one in 10 people are mixed race and growing. Independents outnumber the majority parties by, you know, two to one. And life is nuanced. Things can't always be simplified and, and, and wrapped in a bow. However, conversely, outcomes to decisions or events are often not as multidimensional as many of us fear or make them out to be. Let's look at a few examples here. So if you go on a first date with somebody... Your head might be flooded with anxiety, excitement, anticipation, and say that so much is unknown, which is partially true. But at the end of the day, if we're looking at that discrete event of a first date, really two things can follow that night. You're either going to see that person again or you're not. There's two outcomes. And if you're going to get a little more granular, that person can either be a significant other, a fling, or nothing. Three outcomes. You know, a big part of my, of my, of my uh, day job is negotiating contracts. You know, on the surface, it can be very daunting to think, oh my, there are hundreds of thousands of dollars at stake with this contract. Or however, whatever the price point of your contracts is, it's usually money that you're, you're concerned about. You know, how do I approach this? What do I do? Now, if you negotiate contracts, you're either going to get $0 next year when, when this contract renews or some range from what the client currently pays you up to a certain reasonable percentage. So it's a tighter range of outcomes than it may seem on the surface. And to put it simply, it's helpful to look at worst case, base case, and best case. You know, outcomes are incremental and things do stack up over time. But if we are truly living in the present, focus on one action at a time. Even if we apply this simplicity of outcomes philosophy to the NFL, it takes the emotion out of situations as a fan. You know, if your team is 5-0, and it doesn't have to be the NFL. It could be any kind of competitive contest. But say the NFL for the, for the intents and purposes because we all know that I love the NFL. But if your, your team is 5-0 going into this weekend, you're either going to end the weekend at 5-1 or 6-0. There's two outcomes again. And even looking at this Jets, Darnold, sky is falling, mono illness, they are worst case 0-4 right now, which I'll get into. But they would be... Another two real outcomes. You know, if they were one and three, they, they still would suck and they still would be in a precarious spot. So consider that the same bucket as 0 and 4. They either would be, the other two outcomes are they'd be 2 and 2 at 500 or solid to good at 3 and, three and 1 or 4 and 0. All right? So while it's five technical outcomes, it's really three different outcomes. So just think about that when you're applying this concept of if you're, daunt, if you're daunted by the fact of how a situation is going to unfold. It's usually limited to two, maybe three outcomes. NFL week five to six bridge next.
So I had to start the NFL segment this week talking about the Jets, right? In general, I think the Jets are a very emotionally, negatively elastic team. And what do I mean by that? You know, one component that I feel is overlooked by basic handicappers is the emotional bias component um, or just the emotional component in general. You know, what spot is a team in when they play with is the emotional component? What game do they have next week? What game do they have last week? What's their emotional state? It's not something that's all often calculated. We, we, we think these, 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 these athletes are robots, but they're not. Um, but one component that I feel is overlooked specifically is the emotional bias component. Now, you can joke that I'm a Jets fan homer. And I do suffer from being a homer at time to time. You know, I think most of, most of us do as fans. And you often hear pick with your head, not your heart. Easier said than done. But I try to you know, do my best to, to, stay, uh, to stay as neutral as possible. And I think this is improving over time. Um, but certain teams, you know, with certain teams, I believe that they're given the benefit of the doubt because of a winning history, franchise competence, or an abundance of fantasy football skill position standouts. So perception that this team is good. Now, conversely, others are buried quickly because of a losing history, franchise incompetence, or being boring. You know, I think the Jets fall into this latter classification. So the Jets are 0-4 and lost a coin flip game to week, week one to, to uh, a better-than-we-thought Buffalo Bills team. And they had three games with the quarterback because their second-string quarterback broke his leg the first half of week two. But they lost three games, the Browns, the Patriots, the Eagles, starting a quarterback who is not NFL quality in Luke Falk. You know, they played two Super Bowl contenders in that stretch, in the Eagles and the Patriots. You know, we are playing very poorly, but let's take a breath, all right? The Jets are top 11 in defense and special teams, according to uh, DVOA and analytics and football, from, football, from Football Outsiders, a website that I, that I often tout and enjoy. Now, we're getting back our franchise 22-year-old second-year quarterback in Sam Darnold, who has been trending up since December last year through training camp in the preseason. So let's take a breath here for a second. You know, you might get a sense of one of my picks this week, okay? So that was the good, and now I'm going to go the other way. Adam Gase, you better win this week. I'm done with the excuses. I was a lot angrier days ago, but I'm still pretty angry about this guy. Now, here are a few caveats, all right? This team wasn't expected to be a real contender this year, all right? The Vegas over-under was seven and a half games, all right? The team had an absolutely wretched, wretched general manager in Mike McCagnan that got fired this spring in a very Jet-like way, of course, after he, he screwed up a few draft picks. You know, the roster lacked depth and had question marks coming into the season on special teams, the offensive line, the pass rush, and lacked a number one wideout. You know, we also could have never expected Darnold to get mono and be ill the first five weeks of the season. It might have been a bit optimistic of me to have them win nine games, which I predicted on this podcast. But where this team currently is, this is a lifetime low for me as a Jets fan. Lifetime low. 
Not since Rich Kotite, Richie Kotite, the immortal Richie Kotite in 1996, has a less competent head coach been the head of my football team. Adam Gase is a fucking disgrace. Now, the Jets are a subpar franchise historically, all right, a punchline. And I'm going to use we as I describe the Jets, all right? I, I used to get annoyed when I was a kid when my cousin used we to describe the Yankees. And no, we aren't on the payroll, but we can come to mean a collective of the players, coaches, management, and ownership. And fans, as we all want the same thing. We all want the same thing. So all those things are kind of in the same collective. So as part of this Jets collective, as much as they are incompetent, their winning actually outperforms their incompetence. They've had winning in the last two decades or so. A couple division titles, multiple playoff victories, and several as a dog. You know, three AFC title games, 13 years, of 500 or better since 1997. You know, it's not even, but it's not even Halloween right now. And I've already had it with this head coach. And before you say, typical Jets, you know, it's not. The Jets are 0-4 for the first time in 16 seasons. You know, rookie head coaches since 2002 have actually had success in their first year. Herm Edwards won a division title in a playoff game. Eric Mangini won 10 games and got us to the playoffs. Rex Ryan got us to a division title with Mark freaking Sanchez. His first two seasons made the playoffs. Got us to the AFC Championship game both years. Sorry, I said division title. I meant AFC Championship with Mark Sanchez. Even Todd Bowles. Won 10 games with Ryan Fitzpatrick. Nope. Not Adam Gase. I know it's four losses. I know crazy things have happened in the NFL. But I'm not holding my breath here. Why did we hire this guy again? With his stupid friggin' hat pulled down to his nose. And his smelling salts in the preseason to get himself fired up. And his googly-eyed press conference. You know, I hated he was a candidate back in January. Hated it. Bemoaned the hire. Talked myself into him in training camp and the preseason when there were some good early returns on Sam Darnold. But this guy sucks as a head coach. He's in over his head. He, was, he sold the bill of goods to the incompetent Johnson brothers as the ownership. But what has he done? Seriously, what has this guy done? In Miami, he won a few coin flip games, locked himself into 10 games his first year, and got his ass kicked in Pittsburgh in the playoffs. His ass kicked. He had a differential the last two seasons in Miami of minus 226, which in 2017 was fourth worst, and in 2018 was third worst. In his first year, out of the 10 games they won, Eight out of ten wins were by one possession or less. Professional handicappers and bettors look at close wins as luck. And over time, those regress to the mean. So his record as a head coach, 23-29. and Six games under 500. 
He's not even close to 100 games yet. Unbelievable disgrace. You know, in 52 games, he was blown out 16 times. That's over 30% of his games. You know, Anthony Lynn, who has coached 10 less games, 40 games, was blown out four times. Four times, 10% of his games, a third of the percentage of games. And we have to hear all kinds of narratives from Bill Simmons and R.J. Bell and Mike Lombardi that he isn't a good coach because he had bad luck with kickers and his time management sucked during his first month of his coaching career. Racial coding. Happens plenty in sports world, even in coaching. That's a topic again for another day. But for Gase, heaven forbid the incompetent ownership duo for my team for looking into any nuance when hiring this guy. Peyton Manning labeled this guy a quarterback whisperer. Oh, joy. He had a good offense under Peyton Manning. My dog Bruno could have been the offensive coordinator under 2013, and the Broncos would thrive. I'm going to whisper something, Gase. You have about as much imagination on offense as a plagiarizer. Win this week, Gase. Win. I don't give a fuck that you're playing a more talented Cowboys team or that the stadium's going to be filled with 60% Cowboys fans or that your quarterback is coming off a mono or that Chris Herndon's out or that CJ Mosley's out. Win. I'm done with the excuses. Week six picks against the spread coming up and storylines. All right, so before we get to picks against the spread, um, we're going to go through week six storylines. So as we go into this week, here's what I see as the biggest storylines. All right? I got six. All right, number one, can the overhyped and loathsome Mayfield-led Cleveland Browns rebound against Seattle this weekend after getting their asses handed to them on Monday Night Football by the Niners? That's storyline number one. Number two, has the league figured out how to make Patrick Mahomes human? He's had two games over 300 yards, mind you. No interceptions, but he, he, he doesn't have the video game pace he's, been, he's, been, uh, he's had the first few weeks of the season and he had last year. And will his ankle injury hobble him against another dynamic quarterback, young quarterback from his draft class, Deshaun Watson, this weekend at Arrowhead? So that's storyline number two. Number three, who sucks worse, the Redskins or the Dolphins? What will be the response of the Skins after Jay Gruden was fired earlier this week? Um, number four, battle of the sub-40 offensive gurus. Who is the offensive genius between or, and better coach between Sean McVay and Kyle Shanahan? They face off this weekend in L.A. The San Francisco 49ers go to... Uh, division rival LA Rams. Now on this pod, I know I picked the Niners to win 11 games, but I'm kicking myself that I picked Arians as coach of the year over Kyle Shanahan. I might have mentioned he, I, you know, he was he was my runner up, but it seems like he's on a he's on a good track to win here. So that's storyline number uh, four. Number five um, is Donald going to look? What's Donald going to look like off his bad amino nucleosis? 
And, um, you know, number six, which you know, I think partially already happened, but I think it's something that we have to talk about for storyline. You know, I, I think we need to calm down with the Danny Dimes nickname. I think we have, need to calm down with it. You know, I like what I see intangibly out of the kid. And what he did in Tampa was impressive. But can we slow down with him after his ass kicking in Foxborough the other night? You know, if not for a fluke missed field goal by the Bucks, a chip shot, you know, he, he would have won one game just against the Redskins. All right? So let's calm down with the Danny Dimes stuff. Just for now. All right? He's a rookie quarterback. They struggle. Ham butter knife week six picks coming up next. Okay, so my season has been unimpressive. And until I get to 500, I'm calling these picks the ham butter knife picks instead of the ham sharp hot butter knife picks. There's been nothing sharp and nothing hot about them. All right, I'm 4-9-2 through 15 games. I lost terribly last week picking the miserable Bengals to cover against the Cardinals. I picked Luke Falk to cover against an Eagles team where their offense was overmatched. The Jets offense that was. And I picked the Pittsburgh Steelers against the Ravens, hosting the Ravens as a home dog. Now, I feel like I got screwed on what the roughing, that roughing the passer call against the Steelers. It was largely right about Lamar Jackson regression, but I ended up with a push there. So... You know, 0-2 and 1 last week. So without further ado, week six, ham butter knife picks. Here we go. Let's start in New York. 425 p.m. start on Sunday, where the New York Jets are getting a touchdown against the Dallas Cowboys. Now this lined open at Dallas mine minus nine and a half earlier in the week, but has moved down to seven, minus seven when it was announced that Darnold was cleared. From his mononucleosis. Now the distribution of bets. 90% of the action. On the Cowboys. And 89% of the money. Listen. I know the Cowboys are coming off two straight losses. It's Darnold's first game. Back. Coupled with a few key injuries on on, uh, both sides of the ball for the Jets. But the motivation is going to be massive for the Jets. And their other units have been playing well. As I mentioned. The special teams and defense. Top 11 in DVOA. Now, I like the Jets here getting a touchdown as a home dog. Now, this line hasn't gone up. Sharp money is on the Jets. And if you want to make money wagering, you have to pick unpopular sides and buy low and sell high. So, give me the Jets plus seven here, and I think they have a shot at an upset. Next, let's go to Baltimore, where the Cincinnati Bengals are getting 10.5 points at division rival the Ravens. Now, this line opened up at Baltimore minus 8.5, shot up to 11 before settling back to 10.5. Now, 87% of the tickets, but only 64% of the cash are on the Ravens, which signals square money. You know, I like two trends beyond that here. One, this is a division rival getting this many points at uh, on the road or just against a division opponent, um, as well as a winless team covering a spread. All right. If you if you back winless teams, especially the deeper you get into the season, it's a very high success rate there. Now Lamar Jackson has regressed the last few weeks, and sure, Baltimore's the better team, but I don't like this spot, especially after an, an emotional road win at the Steelers last week. So give me the Bengals plus ten and a half at the Ravens. Finally, let's go out to the desert in Arizona. Now I think Dan Quinn is a terrible coach. He's a dead coach walking. I think Matt Ryan is washed up on the decline. Overrated and hasn't been the same since Kyle Shanahan. 
I picked the Falcons to go 4-12 and this year. But guess what? I like them giving 2.5 this week at the Cardinals. Listen, they got embarrassed last week, especially defensively in Houston. And I think their defense actually shows up this week. All right? I also think Arizona, off their first win, is not going to have as much energy. They are not a good defensive team. They're not going to be able to stop Atlanta's weapons. Now, this line opened at Atlanta uh, minus 2.5 and, and has held steady. 65% of the tickets are on Atlanta. and 59% of the money, though, is on Arizona, which is a little scary. A 2.5 spread frightens the hell out of me as well. But give me the desperate Falcons on the road at Arizona. Minus 2.5. So I'm rolling with two of my losing teams last week in the Jets and Cincinnati. So to recap my picks, I like the New York Jets plus 7, Cincinnati plus 10.5, and, and Atlanta minus 2.5. Quick rant up next. All right. So for my rant this week, I don't know what to call them, but I don't know. Would it be street solicitors? Yeah, this sounds really nefarious. All right. This isn't anything anything bad, but these are those people that stand on the street, typically during the workday, in um, you know high corporate or high tourist areas. Usually, I think high corporate areas uh, facing back to back, about five to 10 feet apart, looking for suckers in both directions to smile and wave at so, so that these said suckers could give their credit card to some cause. Right? I've noticed that they will try anyone who makes eye contact, but I think also they target people that look like suckers that might look really nice, that are smiling back at them. And I'm not, for, I'm not some curmudgeon who, who advocates frowning at people and looking unpleasant. But I won't give these people the time of the day. You know, I don't care what the cause is. You know, I'm not going to give my fucking credit card to Joe or Jane Blow in the middle of New York City. And I don't care how legit they tell me their cause is or what email receipt I get. You know, do they think I want my info being sold on the dark web? You know, for any... Uh, any of you out here doing this or knowing anybody who does this, like, stay away from also, you know, men with wedding rings, all right? No, you want to know why? Because any guy stupid enough to do this without wife sign-off is going to be sleeping on the couch that night. You know, the days of Harry Renard buying a little bit of stock and his wife incredulously smiling and nodding are over, all right? For any of you thinking of stopping, don't. They want your money on the spot. You know, I, I made the mistake of doing this in my more naive days, and it was some child hunger cause which seemed really great, it seemed noble, seemed legit. But I had to talk to Jen about it, and the guy who stopped me got angry at me and said, come on, man, I get a commission out of this. It's bullshit. Stay away. These people are not in it for the right reasons. Thanks for listening to the Chris Ham Podcast. Please follow me on Twitter, at Chris N. Ham. Your support and feedback is incredibly valuable as I grow this podcast. So please tell me what you like, what you don't like, and feel free to suggest topic ideas. Take it easy, friends. Be well.